Stories of Being is a series of conversations with a range of inspiring humans whose approaches to life each offer an important piece of the puzzle for how we go about creating the fairer, more balanced, connected and beautiful world we long for. Each conversation explores a new perspective on how we view success, connection, power and progress and offers inspiration and guidance as we collectively transition to more harmonious ways of being with ourselves, each other, and our shared home. In today's episode, episode one of this new podcast, I talk to Catherine Trebek. Catherine is a political economist, writer, and advocate for economic system change. She co-founded the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, which is a group of people um, working to rethink our current economic system. She's a writer-in-residence at the University of Edinburgh, a strategic advisor to Australia's Centre for Policy Development, and she also sits across a range of boards and advisory groups. She's done a lot, and she continues to do a lot. But I think more importantly, she's just a genuine, lovely human who was willing to take the time out of her day to chat to me um, on a podcast that didn't even exist yet. And I'm so grateful that we were able to have this conversation. I think it's a really, or I found it to be a really interesting conversation um, and one that maybe doesn't happen all that often. When we think about what change needs to happen to create a kind of fairer and and better world for everyone the economy isn't necessarily discussed so i hope that yeah you enjoy it um and kind of yeah it just gets you thinking creating and making a podcast is extremely uncomfortable in many ways um so thank you for listening feedback is always welcome Um, And yeah, no, I really just hope that you um, enjoy this episode and get something out of it. You know, I've started recording episodes before launching it. um, And I've been thinking about what episode I'll start with. And I thought this one could be a really good one to start with because the economy kind of seems to be at the heart of so many of our problems as like people, but then also the planet. So yeah, I just really wanted to kind of chat to you and hear about the work that you do and yeah, how you even ended up in this space. Oh, Ingrid, there's a there's a sensible answer to that. And then there's the real answer. And so the the real answer is, you know, I followed interesting projects and one door opened led to another interesting project. And and there's a lovely Scottish phrase. It says your feet will bring you to where your heart is. And I think just in retrospect, that's that's what's happened, that I'm in this incredibly, really fortunate um, and exhilarating space where I get to work on topics I feel really passionate about and I find really interesting and also work with really, really cool people. So it, it has been a sort of almost stumbling in into it, but in the sort of the longer version of that answer is I was working with Oxfam for a long time, for about 10 years, and really loving that work, you know, very passionate about global justice questions and, and poverty reduction. And Oxfam was getting particularly more interested in the impact of environmental breakdown on poverty and development questions and was really seeing in the work it, Oxfam did around the world 
how much environmental um, damage and environmental catastrophe was undoing some of the progress that had been made in development. And so all those questions were sort of raging around in my mind. And I was I was also working for Oxfam's uh, UK-focused programs, a really small part of Oxfam's work, and particularly focused on Scotland. And what was really apparent there that this rich country in GDP terms, uh, one of the six richest countries in the world, still had extraordinary problems and and this was sort of back in the early 2000s and was really apparent where where I was living in Glasgow that there were parts just down of the city just down the road from where I lived where life expectancy was in early 50s for men and and I joined Oxfam at the time of the Haiti earthquake and that was higher than the average life expectancy in Haiti and and so I started asking all these questions about what what is going on here if if economic wealth is not an automatic route to delivering good lives for people. What questions do we need to start asking? So I started just sort of diving into those questions about what is it about the nature of the economy and really realising and learning how much all different issues, whether you're passionate about the environment or about social justice or about employment issues or any almost any other topic, there are economic roots of the challenges, but also the possibility there. And and so almost that that you know that cliche line, it's the economy stupid, started to just sort of emerge really, really profoundly for me. And when you started asking those questions, did it feel like you were kind of the first one to do it in a way, or that those questions wouldn't were new to lots of people? Yeah, not not by any means. And I, I've got so many sort of intellectual heroes that I've, I've learned from and drawn on and, and sort of really I feel I'm sort of, I don't feel an expert in any of this. I feel I'm sort of weaving together sort of other people's expertise a little bit. Having said that, though, in, in some so many civil society organisations particularly, they folk, and also often a lot of government policy as well is focused issue by issue it's about responding one crisis to the next and not taking the time to see the patterns between them and so this back in these Oxfam days this is about um, 15 or so years ago now did a period of a program of work where we worked with folks who are working on all sorts of different issues themselves whether it was cancer or health inequalities or poverty in the UK or consumerism or taxes and just started weaving together how they are all connected when you start looking up upstream. And I think just giving people space to have those discussions was really quite powerful and it sort of built a, in retrospect, it built a bit of a, a movement in Scotland that was a really strong basis to then push the Scottish government on how it conceptualises progress, success, and that led to various moves by the Scottish government to reappraise its understanding of success. Um, it, it revised something called the National Performance Framework, which is a multi-dimensional um, well-being framework, which now, of course, Australia's talking about having having something similar. And it meant having those conversations in the early days of that really meant there was a constituency and a community of practice that wasn't just me at Oxfam or it wasn't just individual organisations. It was unions, it was churches, it was business organisations, it was social justice organisations, it was environmental groups who really said, 
we're all connected to this and we want to see action on it. Yes, I'd love to come back to that more, I guess, holistic and connected way of thinking. But just going back to something you said a little bit earlier is you mentioned GDP. So obviously that's probably a term, you know, most people are aware of and it's, you know, currently how we measure the success almost of a country. Um, So I'd love for you to kind of talk to almost the origins of GDP, what it kind of looks like and I guess where the challenges may be with using that as a as a metric of success. Sure, yeah. So, so GDP was created by a chap in the US called Simon Kuznets back in the sort of post um, sort of depression era to really start to help. Um, it was Roosevelt at the time, sort of measure what you know the impact of policy levers on the depression and hence the economy. And and Kuznets was really humble about it. He said you should never measure the welfare of a nation through these numbers. What happened is in the post-war era, it became adopted as a almost a proxy for the success of a, a country. Uh, you had the sort of Cold War competition between you know, the sort of post the communist bloc and the West sort of competing you know, whose GDP is better. So very much both using that framework. And you also had a whole lot of institutions that were formed after the Second World War, the, the you know, Bretton Woods institutions, IMF and so on, that then reinforced the use of GDP through various accounting rules and, and really formalised it, despite its creator saying, hang on a minute, this shouldn't be, shouldn't be used. And, and what it really it does is it counts what's marketised in an economy. So it counts how much we're spending, whether it's government or businesses or consumers, and so you and I doing this podcast, you know, um, you know, this is, this is our time. That's not counted because we're not spending money on it. But then if someone was to, for example, pay the subscription or to, to buy this podcast or to buy this pen that I'm, I'm holding up, that would be counted in, in GDP. So you can imagine when people look at their lives, there's loads of really important aspects of lives that aren't something that's traded in the marketplace. So GDP won't see that. It also doesn't really capture the distribution of, of wealth. So you can see that almost the, the tyranny of averages will be marked, will be masked by um, will mask inequalities in a country. And the other problem I have with GDP is that it also it, it gives perverse incentives to government. So if people are healthy and safe, and so not spending money on anti-anxiety drugs or security systems because they're not scared of each other, GDP actually won't move. And so that could be seen as, well, you know, problematic. So people, you know, governments get these signals that spending more money on something is a good thing when actually that could be spending to fix and repair. Um, I, I, to be honest, I really feel sorry for GDP, Ingrid. It's almost like a shoe that's had too big a foot put in it and so it's breaking at the seams because it's been overused beyond what it was ever intended to do, to do. And, of course, governments have loads of other statistics that they look look at. I think the problem with GDP is it's just used as a shortcut. It's used as a default. It's used as a, a shorthand for how we think about the success of the economy. And because of global rules, because of geopolitics, that's also become associated with the success of a country. And so governments really feel that they need to increase economic growth, which they measure by by GDP, though the, the two aren't exactly the same. 
and probably quite naively, like you said, I didn't actually realise until recently that yeah, things like a country spending X amount of money on healthcare or the prison system or something contributes to GDP. So if a country's really sick and, say, crime is high, through that metric they're seen as successful, which is quite mind-blowing. All sorts of fascinating sort of statistical stories of different governments wanting to increase their GDP and therefore tweaking what they include in it. So Italy, for example, adding in organised crime and prostitution and, you know, the drug trade. Say, oh, that counts, boosting it, its its GDP. And, and so it's a really, it is really a flawed measure of progress and, and it's also, I think there's something also more about the zeitgeist underneath it, this idea that more of anything is a good thing, more everything that's more that's marketised is also a good thing. And yet when we look at, you know, what really makes good lives for people, it's not necessarily having infinite amounts of stuff, absolutely having enough. That That's vitally important. So for folks or countries or communities that don't have enough, but after a certain point, you know, you can get to a point where you have enough and it's also doing things in community and relationships and time in nature that really makes the difference to people. And the key thing is there is a material basis to that. So if you don't have a job that enables you to spend time with your family because you're having to work three jobs on minimum wages, for example, then you're going to struggle to be able to have the sort of quality of life that you want. So the economy matters here, but it's not everything. So there's sort of these different questions around how is the economy supporting people to live the sort of lives they want to live? Yes, and it's a complete change in perception of what, which you alluded to, like what success is. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you you think of how, well, how countries conceptualise their success so often is where they rank in international GDP tables. And and that's reinforced by geopolitics in that the entry ticket to various decision-making groups like the G7, the G20, literally is how big is your country's GDP. And so power in, on the international stage and prowess and big photos with other other leaders follows GDP. But also for, for people here in, in Australia, often it's, I mean, I, there was a news report here in Canberra a few weeks ago of how Canberrans have the second biggest houses in the world. And, I'm, you know, I wasn't surprised when that, that came out in the news because it's really struck me of how people are, here in Canberra, they're knocking down sort of 1950s houses and they're building enormous properties, yes. huge properties, which to me I can't help thinking are sort of sign outwardly outward displays of, of wealth. Yes. In a way, individuals doing that, it's hard to step off that treadmill and chart a different course when that's the system you're stuck in as well. So there's something, yeah, really, really sad going on and pressures that that puts on families to work more, to maintain the mortgage, to keep those, you know, those debt payments going, to have the big house. And then what's the cost of that? Time with kids, time with community, just time on your own and, you know, sitting under a tree or reading a book or cooking or, I mean, there's, yeah, there's so many perverse incentives for individuals as well. Yeah, and I wonder, there's a lot of correlation or there's a common theme, say, between, or it seems like there's a common theme between, say, like individuals, businesses, and then even 
countries in terms of this more, more, more growth is everything, almost the, the uh, you know, the need for the external to fill and to kind of be seen as successful, that actually that theme runs both from the, the macro down to the micro. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and with businesses as well, as you, as you said, I always think that profit is like the businesses equivalent of, of GDP for, for governments. So you've got amaz- so many amazing businesses out there that are saying, yeah, of course we need to be commercially viable, but we're doing that in order to be able to deliver other benefits and that what I describe as pro-social businesses. And there's all sorts of different mo- business models that they can set themselves up with to deliver that. And then you have other businesses that are really set up in a way that's in their DNA to pursue short-term profit. And that comes with all sorts of costs and all sorts of perverse choices being, being made by businesses, probably that most of the people in the business themselves don't want to be making. But it, it, you know, GDP is acting as that really narrow straitjacket. Sorry, profit is acting as that really narrow straitjacket for, for business the same way GDP does often for governments. Yeah, so there's very much a, a parallel there kind of coming back to what you said about um, the disconnection within businesses people may not even know because they're kind of maybe more siloed they're not aware about the impact they're having you know because they're just in their own lane there's not that kind of whole thinking across the board yeah I think I think the the visual of being in your own lane is a really really good one because I think often it's the systems within an enterprise within a business that compel people or constrain them to make certain certain choices I think people are you know they go into you know their day at work as a citizen as a family member as a neighbor and then it's how they're incentivized it's the choices they're able to make it's their promotion it's their remuneration it's often the ownership of the business that matters as well who's making decisions in the business it's all these other slightly external factors to them so that you know the visual of a lane maybe with some pretty you know high walls between each person's lane really constrains individuals and almost compels them to tread a certain course that they may not as humans want I know I have I don't think there's that number of evil people working for businesses making I mean there is evidence that there's a higher number of psychopaths as CEOs of businesses by no means do I think that the vast majority of people working in enterprise are psychopaths I think vast majority of them are amazing people with passions and concerns and awareness of the world who though yeah are often compelled um explicitly or implicitly to tread a tread a course that may not align with who they are as humans and it's very easy you know but people in those positions have targets and kpis and you just get into that mind frame and like you said there's nothing they're not necessarily you know bad it's just that they're in that system and that and that world yeah, and if they have got the big house that's required them to have the big mortgage and they've got that big house because they're wanting to fit in and show a certain status uh, and be part of a certain way of thinking about success, then that compels them to, you know, take certain jobs that are going to pay off that mortgage and so on. So you just get this quite vicious cycle. And there's a there's a beautiful phrase um, from one of my many intellectual heroes, um, Manfred Max Neef. And he, he's a Chilean, well, he was, he passed away a few years ago. He's a Chilean economist. And he he talks about how 
this idea of fundamental human needs that people wherever they are in the world almost have this sort of shared commonality of human needs and of course how we go about satisfying them will differ wherever you are in the world but deep down people really share the need for relationships for a sense of dignity for purpose of course having enough so shelter and enough food and and so on and then he says so we satisfy them in different ways and then he says but beware of pseudo satisfiers and I think that's a very very powerful phrase of pseudo satisfiers and I think a really good example of that is people's really innate very human need for belonging for social connection for affiliation so often and you see this I think with a lot of young kids today is is they're reaching for consumerism and sort of social media sort of certain profile to belong and there's something really sad about that. And Ingrid, what's incredible is that advertisers are getting very, very, very good at using that and tapping into it. There's a an ad by a um, by Ray Bans online, quite a cool, upbeat kind of song. And it's all about belonging. It's about belonging to your friends, to your street, to your sports team. And then at the end, it just sort of says, "Belong," you know, by Ray Bans, effectively. And so. But that's, that's them very cleverly tapping in to our human need. No one needs Ray-Bans. Yeah, we might need sunglasses to protect our eyes, but what do we really need is belonging and a connection and affiliation and sunglasses won't do it. Yes, I've thought recently about um, a person's need to belong and it, it often coming across or being, I guess, satisfied in like I'm vegan or I'm paleo or I'm keto and I've been thinking about it and Yes, people may love eating like that, but I actually think it's this like, that's my tribe. That's what I identify as rather than just belonging to, to you know, your community or just being a human. People are looking for these, yeah, almost new tribes to be a part of. Do you know there's something really powerful in that, that way of understanding it? Because I think we also see that in terms of different issues and Again, it almost comes back to the sort of segmentation of issues. You're you're either focused on on a particular narrow political interest and really head down fighting for that particular cause or that identity or that group, and not take not being able to find common ground and shared battles, I guess, with folks who are working on some of those common root causes. One of the phrases I'm so often saying to to folks I speak to is we we just need to start channeling out in a three-year-old and, you know, your little inner three-year-old's always asking why, 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 why. That's what we need to do and, and, you know, really see. Then you can start to see those patterns across those those issues and then when you see patterns, you know there's something structural going on, something systemic, and you can join up and and start to take action there. But I, I think... Not enough of that is happening at the moment. I see, I mean, even within the economic system change movement I and this big sort of disparate, diverse, amazing movement of, of folks working to transform the economy, you see people saying, well, it has to be about universal basic income or it's about circular economy or it's about beyond GDP measures. And actually all of that is important. All of it we're going to need to change and transform. And I think that but why... Um philosophy I guess you could call it is really important because it makes it just conversations about things like changing the economy accessible because I think often particularly when it comes to say like the need to change an economic system people who don't have an in-depth understanding of 
what our system is or how it could be different are almost scared by having that conversation because they're not an expert but just that that philosophy of but why just enables people to ask a question yeah yeah and to not take it face values all these symptoms of the fallout you know all the collateral damage and that's where you know that leads and we have to respond to that you know that's acute need but it's also if we keep doing that we're just playing whack-a-mole and I think you're right I think the the economy is so often dressed up as something that's remote that's also the preserve of people who have economics and accounting degrees and no one else can can go there and it's also often implied that the economy cannot be changed and yet the economy is shaped by decisions we all make it's shaped by decisions politicians make and it absolutely can be changed and transformed and yeah it's hard work to do that because there's a lot of vested interests there's a lot of path dependencies and also this is also not just about one policy here or there this is about a mindset shift in in government I think particularly but also how we talk about the economy so it's not easy but it's absolutely possible because there's nothing inevitable. You know, the economy is not like gravity. It's not It's not automatically has to be the way it is. And we've seen, even in different countries, different approaches to the economy. So I guess on that, what, what countries would you say at the moment are doing things well or, as, you know, in the best way possible? Um, and is there, can you see this shift happening Ah, this move away from how we currently kind of shape our economy. So no country is doing this completely. Um, what, what I think we're seeing is different little isolated examples of the sorts of things we would want more of. And so we're seeing we can put together a little, we can point to examples of different different things. And even, even in Australia, it's loads of loads and loads of good stuff happening. I think the conversation in Europe feels a lot more aligned with the realities of the 21st century than, to be honest, a conversation in Australia does. I think Europe's really starting to, well, it's explicitly saying it wants to move to a wellbeing economy. It's eighth environmental action plan that came out about a year ago now. It has an explicit statement of building towards a, a wellbeing economy. They've got a massive conference coming up in May around beyond growth, saying, you know, can we imagine an economy that's that's better than than growth? And given all that we know about the links between economic growth and environmental impact, but also the fact that growth hasn't done enough, as I was saying earlier, with the example of Glasgow, to deliver good lives to people, we need something. We need better recipes now. Uh, so it's starting to take that on very very seriously. And then individual countries, I mean, one of the ones I really find exciting is the cooperative movements, so worker worker co-ops. And there are places like the north of Italy, um, where in a region called Emilia-Romana, where there's a huge percentage of co-ops in the local economy. And the Italian constitution has supportive clauses to support you know, co-ops and umbrella groups. Uh, in Scotland, there's a part of the Scottish Enterprise Agency. So there's government's enterprise arm that is supporting encouragement of cooperatives, particularly when owners of a business are wanting to retire, really that juncture there to make the most of that. You know, can we maybe transfer it to the workers? And so the workers become owners I think there's a lot of um, moves, say, in places like Austria for the economy for the common good and really starting to have different accounting sheets for, for businesses. 
And in terms of what governments are doing in their own measures of progress, over half of the OECD governments have multidimensional wellbeing frameworks. So I mentioned earlier Scotland's national performance framework and how Australia is just starting to think about having a, a wellbeing framework. I mean, that, the fact that over half of the OECD countries already have these shows that Australia's got a bit of a catch-up um, to do, but it also shows that it's not enough because it certainly doesn't mean that over half the OECD countries are well on their way to aligning their economies with much more of what with what people and planet need. Uh, I mean, there's so many examples I could keep pointing to, whether that's you know local community gardens, whether it's cities that are pedestrianising their streets, whether it's community-owned renew renewables in Denmark, whether it's Sweden reducing its tax on repairing goods, whether it's France and Italy banning uh, food waste and France and Europe banning planned obsolescence, whether it's Bhutan's gross national happiness, or whether it's Thailand's sufficiency economy, I mean, whether it's Seoul and North, uh, South Korea really pushing for the sharing economy. There are so many examples out there. And I hope, you know, listeners will also be thinking, oh, yeah, there's this I know, or down my local street, there's this really cool social enterprise, or there's a community garden, or even those tiny little street libraries. They are tiny things, but they're examples of a different way of sharing goods and services with each other. So they're really symbolic and they're really important as just little steps away from the recipes of the 20th century where everything was marketised, everything was seen in your value of how much you make, how much you earn, how much you have and own. Yes, I think that's a really good point in the sense of it can look small and insignificant, but actually it's all of those little things that add up and it and it, it allows people or one to change their perception. So if it's reducing the amount of books you buy and you, you know, get them from those little street libraries and then put them back and things like that, or, you know, only one person on the street having a lawnmower and everyone then just shares that because you use it once every two weeks. Exactly. Yeah, tool libraries are a cracking example and toy libraries as, as well. I mean, such a beautiful example. And there's one, one of the first ones in Australia was in Brisbane. It got sadly hit by the Brisbane floods a few years ago. But here in Canberra, where I am, there's a tool library as well. Um, there's amazing group, groups in Canberra called Buy Nothing Groups. I'm, I'm sure there's something similar in other cities where you just have people posting. And I saw the other day someone had said, oh, Here's a tin of Milo. I didn't like it, but I've only tried one spoon. If anyone wants it, we put our um, our dishwasher and we gift gifted that away. It's just a different way of providing for each other. And you're right. At first glance, they're small, but change happens at the margins. It doesn't happen in the mainstream. And what happens at the margins, the more people start to see it and start to think, I could do that too, and start to replicate it, then you start to move towards a tipping point and maybe even a new normal. And the key thing there is all those good things will happen despite the way the policy regime works. So we also need to say to governments and policymakers and politicians, look what's happening. You need to help this. You need to enable more of this to happen. You need to change the rules of the game to encourage and support that sort of activity. So, so that's sort of all layers of that system. It's sort of individual activities, but also the policy, but then also the questions we ask about the economy as well. And you you sort of touched on this earlier, and I've heard you talk about it before, but kind of this notion of um, 
Band-Aid Solutions. Yes, I'd love you to come chat about that because I think that is, it's so important in this discussion. Yeah, yeah. I think I used the phrase earlier of whack-a-mole. It's, it's so often social policy and, to be honest, a lot of a lot of charity work is at that a downstream acute need and it's responding to a crisis. It's responding to the immediate collateral damage of things that have deeper deeper roots if we took the time to channel our inner three-year-old and, and ask why. And so I don't begrudge that. That's really important uh, in a system that is doing that damage because it, it helps people survive and cope with today and tomorrow or help, you know, responds to environmental breakdown as well. But it costs a lot of money, uh, a lot of resources. And, you, you know, once you start hearing government announcements with this in the back of your mind, you will see that so much of what government does is just that survival and coping and responding after the fact, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon, downstream. And the key thing is damage has been done. It's easy to measure, though. We can count it. We can tally up those numbers and they will increase GDP as well. The more we're spending on anti-anxiety drugs, the more we're spending on security systems, the more we're spending on repairing houses after a massive flood, that will all add to GDP. And so, again, this perverse incentives in this measure that we used as a sort of shorthand for the success of a country is, is almost encouraging those downstream solutions and it won't smile when we get things right first time round. So so, it's, so I think we're in almost in this sort of hamster wheel of just responding crisis by crisis, whack-a-mole sort of game we're playing as profoundly inefficient in its own terms. It's expensive, it's draining, and it mean, and the key thing is it means damage has been done that we could have avoided. We, I mean, by society, if if we'd created a, an economy that helped people live good lives first time around and didn't damage the planet and then require repair. This is a very, very simplistic way <laughs> to think about it. And I obviously know it's not this simple. But like you said, it's also just a simple mindset shift in the sense of away from fear to almost connection let's say like if you think about how much we spend on say military whatever our military budget is I'm not sure what that is but it's massive billions and billions and billions yes like imagine if obviously have keep some of that but imagine if some of that was funneled into keeping people healthy from the get-go or building communities or helping people out of, you know, poverty, whatever it might be. The money exists there. It's just being spent in particular ways. Yeah, reacting and repairing and responding. And, you know, I want it, it's really, it's obviously so important today and tomorrow, but I think there has to come a time where collectively we raise our gaze and we say we've got to do better than this. We can't keep responding crisis to crisis to crisis and we have to start looking at those those root causes. And and there's a there's an, a, a term that comes from management literature actually of failure demand and this idea that the more demand for a service isn't necessarily a sign of success. It could be a yeah, sign of failure. So think about, you know, complaints to a call centre, for example, for a business and it was used about just over 10 years ago in Scotland. There was a huge report in Scotland on the uh, future of public services in Scotland, a report called the Christie Commission. And they used that term failure demand and they applied it to government. 
And they estimated very, very conservatively that at least um, half of what just local authorities, so local governments spend, is driven by poverty and inequality. Uh, And you can imagine it too when you think of things like remedial education because, you know, of of kids not turning up to school prepared. Uh, Food banks would be another example. Uh, A lot of accident and emergency, a lot of the criminal justice system, all sorts of things, you know, it's like an onion, you'll see it everywhere. I mean, in here in Australia and Melbourne, they've appointed heat officers to help vulnerable people cope with extreme heat. Now, really important work. And I, and one of my friends has been appointed one of them. So really important work. But isn't that just a sign that one, we're pushing the planet beyond what she can handle. And we've got these extreme heat waves that we're going to see more and more of. But also, that there are vulnerable people who are unable to protect themselves. And to me, it's just such a tiny example. In the UK, over the last winter that they've just come out of, not only did they have food banks, and a lot of people were working, still having to go to food banks to put food on the table for their families. They've now also introduced warm banks. So places like museums and libraries and local um, sports centres where people who can't afford to keep their houses warm, either because their houses are so profoundly inefficient and leak energy and also because energy costs are so high, could go and be warm in these warm banks. And you can see what beautiful sort of neighbourly response people setting up those food banks or warm banks are. But to me, they're such an extraordinarily sign of how bad things are in the first place and so the goal has to be imagining a society where we don't need heat offices where we don't need food things we don't need warm banks we don't need so much treatment for people feeling anxious and stressed about their lives where people aren't lonely where young kids aren't scared for their future we have to be able to imagine that we have to and again I think it's a shift from short-term thinking to long-term so like you said these needs are acute and they're necessary because people can't be you know freezing in their home but it's that it's that's short term it's a short-term solution so now what's the longer term um solution and and I've always thought again I I'm definitely not a political expert but I've always thought even you know the way the political system is set up it's four-year term say so how much half of that's probably spent campaigning and those sorts of things so how much can you actually achieve and how much fundamental change can you actually achieve you know in in a short amount of time and again I've heard you talk about I'm completely blanking on the name but an initiative in Scotland where I think it was a hundred people coming together. Oh, the citizens' assemblies were. Yeah, citizens' assemblies. Yeah, our oh, citizens' assemblies are fantastic, and I think Australia should really get amongst it because they're they're beautiful examples of where you get everyday people together to wrestle with some of these bigger, knottier questions. And so the the idea is it's an example of participatory democracy. So not just you know more active. Um, involvement in democracy than just voting every couple of years and then washing your hands of it. So what happens is, yeah, they they select. You get you know really real experts selecting people so that they represent the wider population. So in this case, they're like a mini Scotland, a hundred people that are illustrative of Scotland in terms of gender, age, education, uh, where they live, 
ethnicity, disability status, views on the particular issues as well. And they come together um, regularly sort of for deep dive week weekends. So it's an amazing gift that the participants give to the, to the issue, to the cause. And they've taken place on all sorts of different topics. So in Ireland, very famously, they had one on abortion. And you can imagine how fraught the abortion question is on Ireland. And it changed the views, not only of participants, but of government officials and politicians. And now Ireland has brought in um, abortion rights for, for women as a, on the basis of the Citizens' Assembly journey. Uh, in the UK, there's been big Citizens' Assemblies around uh, climate issues. It was one of Extinction, Extinction Rebellion's big request, and that happened. And in Scotland, there's been one on really the future of Scotland and, and one on environment and climate too. So I was part of those in a really small way, but absolutely beautiful experience. And that the Scottish one, if I've got time to tell you a little bit about it, they 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 had these meetings over really how can Scotland respond in a just way to the climate emergency or some some variation of that overriding topic. And so they came out with a suite of recommendations, things like frequent flyer, flyer taxes, frequent flyer taxes, things like uh, passive home standards so that all new builds were had a lighter environmental footprint, um, things like different measures of progress beyond GDP, pro-social business models, whole wide range of ideas they came up with and what's beautiful is that you see they, they split up into groups and they get people who are expert on a particular topic come in and talk to them and share information and the participants question them and they bring their own ideas it's lightly facilitated but it's very much about this the citizens the participants themselves just working through these topics so they came up with this bunch of ideas took them to the Scottish government and the Scottish government responded. And then the participants said, we've got to meet again. We have to have another weekend. And this was all through COVID, so it was on Zoom for a weekend, and that, that's exhausting. But they said, they put up their hands and said, we've got to meet again because the Scottish government's response is not good enough. Mm -hmm. And so they, they reconvened when they thought their experience had been over. They reconvened as an assembly and then wrote back to the Scottish government and said, not good enough you're not grappling with the urgency of action here and that's really powerful I think and hopefully we're starting I was back in Scotland earlier this year and I started to see a couple of the policies start to being enacted so one the passive house is an example that they've just started to legislate that all new social housing in Scotland will have to meet passive house standards um, so that's an example of also galvanising people together, helping them feel more um, informed and in control. And the other pattern I've noticed with other citizens' assemblies and this one is their recommendations will be so much bolder than what most politicians are prepared to talk about. And I think it just proves that this line of, oh, the public is not up for it, is such rubbish. Uh, if you bring people together, give them a chance to reflect and talk and understand and learn, they are really up for the change that's needed. Yes, and it, it, it um, introduces a sense of autonomy and, again, accessibility because it's not someone on a TV screen telling us what's wrong and what the solution is. It gives a bit of autonomy back to the community and, yeah, the people at large. Exactly, which to come back to the early part of our conversation, we know autonomy is such an important fundamental human need. 
So almost these are these democratic exercises are also an example of realigning with what people truly, truly need. So they're not just feeling, you know, at the you know, washed away or, you know, damaged or buffeted by bigger processes they have no control over. Getting involved in these sorts of things are really important antidotes to feeling out of control and not feeling you have autonomy over your lives and decisions that impact you. And I've just thought as you were um, just speaking, I wonder if as well if that lack of autonomy is why people can become so black and white in their, say, let's say, political views and I'm this party or that party because it's a way to control, you know, the belief and it gives you some sense of, like, yeah, power in a situation where people can feel very powerless. Control, control very much. I mean, you see there's been really, really um, beautifully but sad research done in the States by Angus Deaton and Anne Case. Angus Deaton won Nobel Prize for economics a few years ago and um, they've, what they've described it is the deaths of despair is this term and it, it describes people in, I guess it's sort of upper working class communities who maybe in the post-war era would have had decent jobs in factories, jobs for life, would have known their community. And they've just seen with various political and economic shifts how that life is changing so profoundly and also how the material basis of that life is being ripped out from under their feet with with closure of those factories, uh, with the economic changes in America and also with the extraction of wealth upwards to the to the very top to the owners of of capital so those workers are not are not getting decent wages anymore and we see in the US and places like Australia that sort of flatlining of real wages for for the vast majority of people and and yet this is a this is a cohort of folks who are been dying prematurely whether through suicide or alcohol or opioid or through heart conditions as well that are often eaten, linked to sort of unhealthy lifestyles. And so what um, Deaton and Case have described this as these deaths of despair, that they're just despairing over their future, that idea that you could almost know and rest assured that your kids' lives would be better than yours doesn't exist anymore. And these are folks who are probably maybe not even clocking the environmental breakdown that's coming, but just economically seeing a sense of hopelessness and how that then has a, a physiological impact and is leading to premature death. And the economy does this. This is the economy. I've heard, um, again, the way of thinking in certain kind of communities and tribes used to be about, well, this decision, they, it, decisions or issues were looked at from how it would impact the next, the past kind of generations and the future generations. You know, so that kind of, which is a beautiful way of. Yeah, there's a seventh generation principle that a lot of First Nations communities have, which is just fantastic and and decisions taken collectively. I think it comes back to a point you were making earlier, Ingrid, around short-term decision-making and political cycles and how can we help politicians break out of that? And, you know, the irony is politicians are actually really good at thinking short-term, sorry, long-term, thinking long-term. When it's, you know, submarine deals, as we're hearing in, in the news this, this month, where, whether it's building a massive toll road that will, you know, probably be, um, you know, opened many years after their, their time in office. So you can see that 
politicians can do it on certain topics. And yet when it comes to thinking of environmental issues and social justice issues, you just see it's short-term crisis response. And so one of the good things about this idea of bringing sort of well-being thinking more into government through better measures of progress is that it has the potential to aid that longer-term thinking and helping government departments work together much more collectively. So not just in their narrow little lane, um, in their narrow confines of their departmental title or their job title, but to start to take the time to see the connections between their work and also see how the causes of what different government departments are responding to are linked to actions in another department. And you know, a good a good example of that is, for example, if if the education department is doing its job well, the justice department will see the benefit of that on their bottom line because there'll be less crime. We we know those, you know, these interlinkages are really real. Yes. Yes. I just have two last questions for you. I don't want to keep you too long. Um we've spoken kind of about how it can look like this change can look from maybe like an individual and community level. But on a business level, how does this kind of um, shift in thinking look? I, I believe that Philips has kind of an interesting way of... Um, the lights. Yeah. Yeah, the lux. Yeah, they're quite a lovely, famous example of, of Philips of saying, you don't actually need the light bulb. What you need is the light that it emits. And so they've started thinking about this unit, it's beautiful, called Lux. So that's a unit of light. And so Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam is a, it's a really famous example where Philips has engaged with them to make sure they'll supply light. And then it's up to Philips to figure out how to do that in terms of light bulbs in the ceiling or so on. And then one of the benefits is then Philips has an, exam, an incentive to put in really long-lasting light bulbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if and if you haven't seen the beautiful little documentary called The Light Bulb Conspiracy, it's really worth watching because it's an example of planned obsolescence. Of light bulbs used to last really, really, really long. And then light bulb manufacturers thought, oh, hang on, we're not making many money here because people aren't buying more light bulbs, so let's make them last less. Uh, and now, of course, you know, there is, because of regulation and agitation, there is a movement now to longer lasting light bulbs as well. But it's an example of planned obsolescence, but Philips has gone a bit further than that. And there's lots of other examples now. I mean, you know, the car hire and where it's your access to the service that matters, not so much your personal ownership. Um, so, you know, micro car hire is a, a, an example of, of that. Um, cooperative housing is another example of that. You know, book sharing we were talking about earlier. So there's there's sort of this movement that this collaborative economy, the sharing economy, not so much the sort of Uber Airbnb, but collaboration with each other is where what matters is that yeah, your your access is your freedom rather than your extent of ownership. So there's yeah, there's great examples of that. And there's so many other other businesses that are getting involved in the circular economy as well, thinking we can't just throw away waste because we know that's got an environmental impact. And there's good examples of governments starting to charge for that as well. So that create changes the the profit, you know, the balance sheet for businesses so they're saying how can we better it see uh there's brilliant example of an organization that makes beautiful face serums and hand creams and face 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 rubs out of old coffee um grind you know coffee greens um there's you know there's a my favorite example is a brewer outside glasgow who makes a line of beer with old 
bread that came from a nearby bakery. So it's a great, great example. And I think there's lots of businesses that are really questioning their role in being part of a positive solution and saying, right, let's think about our products. Let's also think about our role in the community. But it also means they have to think about their ownership, who owns them, who takes decisions and where finance goes and is finance and money being extracted up to remote shareholders or is it owned by the community or is it owned by uh, workers? You know, what different models are, are out there? And I think there's a great, there's so many great examples. It's really exciting what's happening in the enterprise space. Yes, and I think Patagonia is a good example of that. You know, they seem to be the, the pinnacle of what good business can be. Yeah, and they, I mean, there's heaps of others too. There's a um, cosmetic company called Faith in Nature. It's an Edinburgh-based company. They have just appointed to their board someone whose job it is is to represent nature. Mm. So there's someone sitting in the boardroom fighting for nature. That explicit God, and and then there's you know, massive companies like their big U- UK. Um, sort of supermarket Waitrose and John Lewis they're all owned by their staff it's a worker co-operative oh. they're, par- they're partners yeah they're not called employees they're called partners uh, the big engineering firm Arup uh, that I think they designed the Sydney Opera or built the Sydney Opera House again they're, they're sort of an, you know more worker co-op the really famous one that folks often point to is Mondragon comes out of the Basque region in Spain but it's also you know really small small ones too you know like a, a, a enterprises who are just saying yeah we need to be commercially viable but for a purpose so in in Glasgow all the restaurants and cafes have this beautiful bread that comes from a place called Freedom Bakery and that's working with folks in inside prisons to teach them baking skills and it's a social enterprise so they're not trying to extract a ton of profit up to shareholders they use their money to just deliver good services for prisoners through training and coaching and mentoring but awesome, awesome baked bread that is now, you know, everyone buys Freedom Bakery bread in Glasgow because it's such yeah. yummy, yummy bread as well. Yes, and people want to be part of the, the change. So buying that bread is actually a, a fundamental part of making the change. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So I guess on that question, if if there were, say, just three things that individuals, you know, the layman could do to be part of the change and the shift what would what would you say that the top three things are that that people can do so this might be entirely predictable it's just keep asking why so not not take at face value why there are more folks sleeping rough in doorways in Australia why young people are scared for their future because of in the face of climate change you know why more and more people are lonely and why suicide rates are rising but really take the time to ask up ask that why question and look look upstream and I guess that to the second one then is to just have those conversations and to engage in discussion and that helps other you and others to think differently about the economy and start to imagine something different uh, start to imagine something better and the other thing is to support those pioneers I mean we were saying earlier how change happens at the margins in the small scale but the more people who hear about those pioneers, the more support they get, the power, more powerful they'll be, the more replication there will be, and the more flourishing of the sort of practices that we need need more of. So it's sort of ask why, have more conversations, and support the pioneers would be my three tips. And my very, very last question, 
but do you feel hopeful about the future and and yeah that we can get there I I feel hopeful when I'm with people who are part of making change so and I'm lucky in that my work I'm with people a lot but if I'm really really honest the enormity of change required I don't see the policy world engaging with the level of change in nearly serious enough ways, making big enough changes in the time that's needed. We're still in that tweaking the current system stage and that does worry me. Uh, But I, I take hope from how many people are just not waiting for permission and rolling up their sleeves and building change in the here and now. So that's where I get my hope. Um, I'm not always hopeful that we'll do it enough in in fast enough time, but we just have to keep working. Believing that it can be different and being hopeful is an important part of, you know, the change itself. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it gives you that sense that you're contributing and you're part of something bigger. Um, Exactly. Because the alternative to that is despair. Exactly. And I think also remembering that around um issues that have needed like fundamental change like civil rights movements or women having the vote all of those things came from the ground up it wasn't the policy that started it was the people who needed the policy to change that's actually where it started yeah exactly and through collective action amazing things can happen Um, and through collaboration real change can come